It's January 28th, and this is the Daily One-Year Bible Tour. My name is David McAdam, and I am pleased to be reading through the Bible with you today. Our reading today from the book of Exodus takes us to the events leading up to the Passover deliverance of God's covenant people, the nation of Israel. When we think of God's activity in these events, you can understand how the Exodus accounts make for spectacular film and stage adaptations, whether we're talking about Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments, the animated musical The Prince of Egypt, or the film or stage play Moses. The events recorded in today's reading would be worthy of some sensational headlines in today's newspapers. For example, in Exodus chapter 7, verses 8 through 12, we would read, Moses and Aaron return to Pharaoh. Aaron's rod, turned snake, devours the competition. Or how about this one? Moses warns Pharaoh of danger to nation's water supply. In Exodus 7, verses 14 to 18. Or, Israeli-Egyptian negotiations break down. Pharaoh ignores warning. Nation's water supply turns to blood. In verses 20 to 21. Or, Egypt cannot work the magic to reverse the curse. Efforts of courts officials only increase contamination. Exodus 7, verse 22. Pharaoh refuses Israelite demands. Exodus 7, 22 through 23. Well, let's begin our reading in the book of Exodus, chapter 5, beginning with verse 22, as Moses is reflecting upon his commission to go before Pharaoh and ask for his people to be set free. Verse 22, Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 6 But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, 
the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon are Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Izha, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife Elishaba, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Petuel, and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7 And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was eighty years old and Aaron eighty-three years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, 
and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to his heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So let's spend a few moments to unpack what we've just read. A genealogy is inserted in the narrative of the Exodus story to remind readers that the events that follow involved real people. These events are rooted in history. Let my people go, says the Lord, the God of Israel. The story of the Exodus is a defining moment in the history of Israel. It is to be enshrined in their memory. It is to be considered unforgettable. However, the nature of the human heart is to forget the unforgettable. For this reason, the events of this first exodus were to be commemorated annually by the Jewish people in the Feast of Passover, lest they forget what God had done to make them a free people. The greater event of the greater exodus of the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, delivering us from our bondage to sin, death, and Satan, is to be commemorated regularly by believers from all nations in the ordinance that Jesus gave his disciples. The Lord's Supper is a Eucharistic meal. The word Eucharist really is a translation of the word thanksgiving. So it's a thanksgiving meal in which his self-sacrifice for our salvation is remembered in our partaking of bread and a cup filled with the fruit of the vine as a symbol of the once and for all offering of his body and blood in his atoning sacrifice for sin on our behalf. May we never forget what God has done to purchase our freedom. The ten plagues inflicted by the hand of God will also bring to light the hand and heart of Pharaoh. As in Moses' demonstration of the leprous hand, 
Pharaoh's hand will stubbornly refuse Moses' demand and resist God's will because, like all human hearts, it is infected with the sins of pride and unbelief. Only the power of God can bring the cure. What does the Bible tell us about the purpose of the plagues? Number one, they are a public manifestation of the supremacy and the authority of Yahweh's sovereign power. Even the Egyptian magicians concede that these signs are God's doing. This is the finger of God, we will read in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. Later in the book of Exodus, two tables of stone written by the finger of God are delivered to Moses in Exodus 31, verse 18 and Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 10. Jesus said that he casts out demons by the finger of God in Luke chapter 11, verse 20. He also writes in the ground with his finger when the Pharisees bring before him the woman caught in adultery to see if he would condemn her. His act of writing in the ground reflects that he is the author of the law, that his is the finger of God. In Exodus chapter 18, we learn that the plagues convinced Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and a priest of Midian, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Moses was above all powers. In Exodus 18, verse 10, we will read, So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. The second purpose that we see for the plagues is that the plagues were a warning and a judgment upon Pharaoh to bring conviction of sin and provoke repentance. For a moment, this proves effective. After the plague of locusts, Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron and says, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 16. But Pharaoh's heart was again hardened. Number three, we also see how the plagues were an expose of the false gods of Egypt and a judgment upon them in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4. So let's just look at the Egyptian deities and how they are exposed as false and judged in the plagues. There is Hapi, the god of the Nile, who could not prevent the water supply from turning to blood. We are to worship the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, and not created things. No created things is to have power over us. If it does, we have fallen into idolatry. Nature is to be appreciated, but never worshipped. There is the deity Hect, the goddess of fertility, who is pictured with the head of a frog. Fruitfulness and family are gifts from God, but never to be given the devotion that is due to God alone. There is the deity Geb, the god of the earth. The Lord turned the dust of the earth into gnats. There is Kephri, the god of creation, who had the head of a fly. Quite miraculously, not a fly appeared in Goshen, where the Jews lived. There is one creator God, and he will not share his glory with another. There is the goddess Hathor, who is often pictured with the head of a cow. Hathor could not protect the livestock of Egypt from dying. Apis, the bull, is another Egyptian deity who proved to be powerless when put to the test. Isis is the goddess of medicine. She could not prevent the Egyptians from suffering from the plague of boils. Nut, the goddess of the sky, could not prevent the devastating hailstorm, nor could Neshpu, 
the god of thunder. Amun-Ra was one of the principal deities, the sun god. Normally light casts out darkness unless it is a false light. Amun-Ra could not prevent darkness from covering the earth. Beware of false light. Jesus said, If the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness! There is one true God, and there is one true light of the world. And then Pharaoh. The Egyptians worshipped their Pharaoh. There is the well-known phrase, Pharaoh is Egypt, and Egypt is Pharaoh. Pharaoh's assumed divinity status would not go unchallenged by the one true Creator God. The last plague would affect the firstborn of Egypt, even Pharaoh's son. The angel of death would strike all the firstborn sons of Egypt. This time God's people could not trust that living in the right neighborhood would save them. No religion, association, or claim of heritage could save them. Only the blood of the Lamb, applied by faith, would cause the angel of death to pass over. In Exodus chapter 12. Paul Johnson, in his book, The History of the Jews, writes, quote, The stories of the plagues of Egypt and other wonders and miracles which preceded the Israelite breakout have so dominated our reading of Exodus that we sometimes lose sight of the physical fact of the successful revolt and escape of a slave people, the only one recorded in antiquity. End quote. Now let's read from the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18. We're going to begin with verse 21. The Parable of the Unforgiving Servant Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I have had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Chapter 19 Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? 
so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So let's take a few moments to reflect upon what we just read. Jesus illustrates the imperative to forgive instantly and completely with an unforgettable story of a man who was completely forgiven and released from a million-dollar debt, but in turn found someone who owed him a paltry sum by comparison. He mercilessly seizes him, chokes him, and demands that he be paid immediately. When others hear of this, he is brought back to his master, to whom he was originally indebted, and tortured until he pays back all that is owed. Jesus concludes, My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. How are we at releasing forgiveness towards others? Are we mindful of how merciful God has been to us? Have we forgotten how much our Savior suffered that we might be forgiven of our debt to God's holy law? Be radical, instant, and total in your forgiveness. Matthew chapter 19 brings us to the subject of divorce and marriage. Remember, John the Baptist had been very outspoken on this subject, especially in relationship to Herod's divorce and remarriage to his brother's wife. Herod had him jailed for his outspokenness, and eventually John was beheaded. The Pharisees were hoping Jesus would slip up and similarly be removed from the scene. There was a debate among two popular schools of rabbinical thought on the interpretation of the phrase found in the law in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, of, quote, some indecency, end quote, in the divorce provision. The rabbi Hillel held the more liberal view that the phrase, some indecency, could include a trivial annoyance, like burning the toast, while the school of Shammai interpreted the phrase, some indecency, as meaning something as serious as adultery. So the Pharisees ask whether Jesus sides with the liberal view of the school of Hillel, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any possible reason at all, or with the school of Shammai, which is for something as serious as adultery. Notice that Jesus does not fall into the trap of identifying himself as a follower of Hillel or Shammai. His reference point is not to popular theologians of his day, but the Word of God. He appeals to the book of Genesis. Haven't you read, he asks? Aren't you glad that you've been reading the book of Genesis and that you've just read the book that he's referred to? Jesus never quotes his contemporary theologians. Instead, he appeals to the authority of inspired scripture itself, the book of Genesis. He declares that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He defines marriage as being in the eyes of the Creator a heterosexual union of man and woman as husband and wife, an exclusive, permanent, indissoluble 
one flesh union. He concludes that they are no longer two, but one. How wonderful it would be if husbands and wives would be renewed in their understanding of how their marriages are seen of God. Jesus does not discount the provision of divorce in the law, but neither does he recommend it. If we are alive to God and our hearts are not hardened by sin, with God's help we will seek to preserve and protect what he has joined together and originally intended to be a permanent union for life. And now we will read from the book of Psalms, and this one may be well familiar to you. It's the Shepherd's Psalm, Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In the past few days, we've been reading from Psalm 22, which was the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. But Psalm 23 is probably the most often quoted psalm in conversation. It's worth committing to memory for regular meditation. It will help guard your heart from covetousness, anxiety, and discontent. Who do you look to for salvation, for care, for guidance? David, the shepherd king, looks to the Lord to be his shepherd king. This psalm puts on display who the Lord is in the life of the believer. Shepherds in the east guarded their sheep, called them by name, led them, fed them, ensured that they were watered, rested, and provided for. He protected the flock from predators. He searched for those who went astray and rescued them. The Lord is more than adequate for every need. In fact, the names of the Lord are reflected in this psalm. Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. In Genesis 22, verse 14, that relates to, I shall not want. Yahweh Shalom, the Lord our peace. In Judges chapter 6, verse 24, that relates to the phrase, He leads me beside still waters. Yahweh Rapha, the Lord who heals, in Exodus 15, verse 26, which relates to, He restores my soul. Yahweh Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, in Jeremiah 33, verse 16, which corresponds to, He guides me in paths of righteousness. And Yahweh Mekadesh, the Lord who sanctifies, in Leviticus 20, verse 8, He anoints my head with oil. As shepherds and sheep look back on the faithfulness of God's care each day, they can confidently affirm these facts. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And now, the book of Proverbs for today. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. This proverb reminds us of the deceitfulness of sin. 
The wicked man is doomed by his own sins. They are ropes that catch and hold him. The way is hard for the wicked. In Proverbs 13:15. Let's pray together. How grateful we are that you are our Father, our Lord, and our Shepherd. We rest in your faithful provisions, knowing that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Even when we are confronted with our lack, our hardships, and adversities, even when we are in the presence of our enemies, you furnish us at your table with that which will strengthen us. Thank you for your comforting presence that quiets and satisfies our souls. Amen. It's been a blessing to be reading the Word of God together with you today, and God willing, we'll be back tomorrow as we press on with the one-year Bible tour. I always like to remind you that we provide a free service, sending out a daily email with a written copy of our commentary on each day's reading with color maps, charts, and illustrations that folks find helpful. You can subscribe to this free email by going to our website, newlife.org. And you can always contact us by email as our email address is podcast at newlife.org. We are happy to answer your questions, receive your feedback and comments, or learn more about how we can be praying for you. Also, you can help us in our mission to spread the Word of God through this podcast by indicating it's a blessing to you, subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, leaving a review, or giving us a like. We trust that the rest of your day be full of inspiration and that you will seize each moment as a gift from God and share the joy. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Shalom. Shalom.